This morning's scripture reading will be from Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 24. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked him, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. Today we are continuing our worship series, Disciple, Perfection Not Necessary. Over these four weeks, we are focusing on scriptures and stories about Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples and a major character in the life of the early church. One would think that such an integral character, such an integral figure in Jesus' ministry would be the perfect example of how to live a life following Jesus. But instead, in Simon Peter, we see not so much a perfect example as a realistic example. A flawed and imperfect disciple that stumbles and doubts, but at the same time has this courage and determination and faithfulness. He reminds us that we don't have to have everything figured out before following Jesus. Rather, following Jesus helps us figure everything else out. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, in these moments, we ask that you may calm our minds and, you may, and help us to open ourselves so that we may receive the message you have for us today. May you empower us to live in light of the gospel message, declaring its truth with our words and embodying this truth through our actions. Amen. Today's scripture has so much within it. Even the place in which it takes place 
is, speaks volumes. It's not just one of the normal places where Jesus took his disciples. It's not the Sea of Galilee or in Jerusalem or on a hillside somewhere. Instead, Jesus it took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which was actually about a couple days' journey north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, for centuries, Caesarea Philippi was a place of pagan worship to the Greek god Pan, the god of nature and flocks and the wild. And then shortly before Jesus was born, also at Caesarea Philippi, King Herod the Great built a temple there, and he dedicated it to Augustus Caesar. And it's in this strange place, surrounded by shrines to other gods and emperors, that Jesus brings his disciples and asks them a few odd questions. First, Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples reply, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah. Basically, Jesus, they think you're another one of the prophets. But then Jesus goes on to ask a more personal question. But who do you say that I am? Have you ever been in a classroom or at work and someone asks a question and you're pretty sure you know the answer, but you're not 100% sure you know the answer, and so you don't say the answer because you don't want to look like an idiot? Well, this is how I picture the disciples here. Up to this point, Jesus had not actually identified himself as the Messiah. The disciples watched him do all kinds of miracles, heal the sick, cast out demons, calm the winds and the waves, and and even walk on water himself. But Jesus never came right out and said, I am the Messiah. So the disciples weren't sure who exactly Jesus was. They had an inkling, but they weren't positive. But leave it to bold and somewhat foolish Simon Peter to answer, declaring you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Messiah, we know, literally means anointed one. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, the the Old Testament, we see individuals and objects being anointed as a way of setting them apart for God's purposes. Priests and kings were anointed as a sign that they had been chosen by God to rule or to lead as God's instruments. And the prophets spoke of this ideal king, one king who would rule with righteousness and justice as God's servant. This was the anointed, the Messiah, the king the Jewish people had been waiting for. And they believed that this king, this Messiah, would be an extraordinary leader, courageous and bold, devoted to God and to God's justice and God's righteousness. Now, when we look at this, when we hear this, we can see that this sounds a lot like Jesus. But the Jewish people also believed that the Messiah would be a great warrior who would raise up this army to cast out the Romans. That does not sound like Jesus. In fact, Jesus was pretty much the opposite of this great warrior. He taught his followers to love their enemies and to turn the other cheek and to do what the Romans commanded of them. But nevertheless, Simon Peter here declares, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus, you are the anticipated king sent by God for us, with whom God has a special relationship like a father to a son. And then to top it all off, the location where Simon says this, in a place that is named in honor of the emperor Caesar, in the shadow of this white marble temple that's dedicated to Augustus, who, by the way, was known as Emperor Caesar, son of a god. So not only does Simon declare who Jesus was, he declares who Caesar was not. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the the son of the living God, not just some son of a god. Jesus affirms Simon's response here. He's excited like a teacher with a pupil who's finally said the right thing, finally got the right answer. Yes, well done, you figured it out. And then he goes a step further, and he gives Simon his nickname, Petros, which means rock. Jesus says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So again, in this location, before this massive wall of stone, the base of Mount Hermon, Jesus speaks into Simon the truth that he sees within him. His boldness and his courage, his conviction and his commitment the qualities that make him the rock upon which Jesus will build his community. The Greek word that Jesus uses here, Petra, it's not just a rock, like we have a rock out front. This is a massive rock, the foundation, a cliff, a rock ledge. That's what this word means. And so that's what he is calling Simon. Simon is going to be this massive rock, this foundation upon which Jesus is going to establish his church. And then Peter's confession of faith, that Jesus was the Messiah, the King, the Son of the living God, that is the belief upon which Jesus' church will be built. We know that no matter what else happens, that Jesus is the Messiah, that that is the foundation of our belief. Jesus goes on then to establish Peter's authority. He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. But then we see Jesus take this abrupt turn, and he warns his disciples, now now you know that I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anyone else. Remember that the promised Messiah was to be this great warrior. That's what everyone thought. And they were supposed to lift up this, this rebellious army against the Roman government. So declaring Jesus as the Messiah would put an immediate target on his back. So he warns them, don't tell anyone. But he also knows And he goes on, we see in this scripture, to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, that he would be killed, 
but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. So Jesus knows this is going to happen. And I can imagine that all of this, from Jesus declaring who he is, saying, yes, Peter, this, you are going to be the rock. You are going to be the foundation. And really excited about this, but oh, P.S., don't tell anyone else. And I'm also going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die and then be raised from, from the dead in three days. I can imagine the disciples' heads are spinning at this point. They're shocked, and, and they're probably a bit unnerved, because, especially because they had been seeing Jesus do amazing things. They saw his popularity growing, and they were probably really excited to see what else Jesus was going to do. Maybe even participate in this religious revival they were hoping for. But how would all of this happen if Jesus was going to die? But Jesus knew. The disciples didn't know. They couldn't see the whole picture, but Jesus knew. He knew what would happen if he continued preaching the way he did, if he continued to speak God's truth into the world. He knew the religious leaders were already mad at him. And that speaking God's truth, continuing to do that, would only infuriate them more. He knew he was going to die. And he believed that his death was actually going to serve God's redemptive purposes. That through his death, he was going to actually draw people to God. Jesus knew all of this. He knew what was going to happen. But Peter didn't see that big picture. He saw the human picture. He didn't understand, and so this man who had just boldly proclaimed, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he now takes Jesus aside, and he reprimands him. For, and he says, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. Imagine how brazen this is of Peter to do, to take Jesus aside and to reprimand Jesus who he just said was the son of the living God. But haven't we all done that? Metaphorically taken Jesus aside and told him, oh no, Jesus, that's not going to happen. You don't really want to do that. You don't want to love those people. You don't know, do you not realize what they've done? You can't possibly forgive those people, Jesus. You don't want me to do that, Jesus. I mean, you say you do, but you really don't. Come on. We do that, right? It's not just me, right? You're looking at me like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, but I think you do. (laughs) Once again, Peter represents us, an everyday disciple. Our heart is often in the right place, But we are not thinking God's thoughts. Instead, we're analyzing the situation from our our very human perspective. We're analyzing it using logic and, and our own reason. And often not actually spending time in prayer or seeking to understand what God wants and what God thinks of the situation. Russ, my husband Russ, is a chef. And chefs move around a lot from restaurant to restaurant until they find their spot, until they find what fits them. 
And last year, about this time, Russ was still trying to find his spot. And I was really annoyed by this because he would switch from restaurant to restaurant. And although he assured me that this is what chefs do, I just wasn't a fan. But at one point, he was fortunate enough to have two offers from two different restaurants in the Cleveland area. One would be a significant pay increase and and would be hours that were more consistent to a nine-to-five job. It would be so much easier on us as a family. But this restaurant family was also known to have morals and values that, well, let's just say didn't exactly mesh with ours. But then this other job... It wasn't as big of a pay increase, and it was regular restaurant hours, which meant it was more evenings and weekends. But we knew that the owners were wonderful, wonderful people, and they had very high values, and they had an excellent reputation around town. Russ was very tempted to take the first job, thinking, if I can just make this money, and then it'll be quick, and then I can move on to something else. And it would be so much easier on us as a family to have that regular schedule again. But after stopping and praying and and really trying to discern where God was leading, he chose the more humble position with a place of high values. And it turned out that that was an excellent fit for many, many reasons. One of which was less than a month after Starting at that place, Russ broke his arm playing football with teenagers on cement because he's smart. (laughs) He's in the back, and I, I love you dearly, honey. You are very smart. Not so much at that moment. And you can imagine that a chef with only one arm is not very helpful or useful But instead of firing him, this place worked with him and got others to cover his shifts so that he could have surgery and he could recuperate. Now, I don't think that Jesus, that God knew that, oh, Russ is going to break his arm and and, or, or God caused that to happen or anything like that. But I do think that because Russ listened to God and discerned with God, that Russ was in the right place where he needed to be. Not only that, but but he's in a place that is excited to help him and to give him space to, to f- figure out and work in this food ministry that he really wants to do and where God is really calling him. And if he had taken this other job that seemed fancy and wonderful to begin with, he wouldn't have these same opportunities. So we have Simon Peter here, and he only sees part of the picture And he says, no, Jesus, this is not going to happen to you. And Jesus has a pretty harsh response to Simon Peter. He says, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. And I I wonder if part of Jesus' anger here is he's recalling the time that he spent in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry when Satan tempted him and, and tested his resolve. For Jesus' final temptation, the devil took him to a high mountain where he could show him all of the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to Jesus, I will give you 
all of this if you bow down and you worship me. But in that moment, Jesus responded to him, Go away, Satan, because it is written, You will worship the Lord our God and serve only him. So maybe, maybe Jesus saw Peter's statement as Satan trying to tempt him again, offering success without suffering himself, offering a crown without the cross. And as alluring as that might have been, Jesus knew God's big plan. Jesus' Jesus' values here weren't easiness and and safety and, and what would make him happy in the moment. Jesus knew what would please God and what would accomplish God's purposes. He believed that the story wouldn't end with his suffering, but it was actually, that was actually only the beginning. Often, like Peter, we think that we know the whole picture. When we see two paths in front of us, one with struggling and discomfort, and the other that's easy and and aesthetically pleasing, we're tempted to take that second path, focusing on on what we want and what we know to be true with our, our logic and our reasoning. But sometimes, especially with faith, The best things don't make sense. Jesus often doesn't make sense. Think of grace and Jesus' unconditional love for us. That logically, in our human world, doesn't make any sense. Butterflies, they don't make any sense, but they are beautiful and they are a miracle. We must remember what the Lord says in Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. In each day and with every decision, we have the opportunity to stand firm in the knowledge of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we can trust in God's greater story. We can be that foundation, that bedrock, Or we could be a stumbling block to our own faith and our own life and what God can do in our life. We can let our doubts and our desires that are absolutely normal, we can let them get the best of us. I ask you, which one will you choose? The bedrock or the stumbling block? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that we have the choice whether to follow you or whether to try our own thing. We thank you for the choice, but we also thank you for the spirit that guides us, that you you don't leave us alone to figure things out, but you come alongside us. God, help us to, to see that we don't see the whole picture that we can't see the big and wondrous things that we can't even imagine yet. That, God, you have a plan for us as individuals and as a church. Help us to see those things and help us to respond with a yes, trusting you, knowing that you love us unconditionally. Amen.